0: thank you for listening to the redemption church podcast for more information about redemption church please visit redemptionokc.com you can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on itunes thanks again for listening Heavenly Father, thank you for the life that we have today, the life that you sustain and withhold and uphold in us, that we woke up this morning and inhaled a breath of life that sustained us. Thank you for the goodness of your creation in this world and the joy of um, walking in in, in community with, with friends in your church. Father, I pray that you would give us a picture of your church Give us a love for your church. Father, give us a love for one another, and um, God, by your grace, give us a love even for the pastor of the church. Father, we come to you, looking at your word today and looking at what you have for the leadership of the church, and Father, we come humbly, uh, but we also come confident in your word. And so, Father, we trust you and ask that you would open our eyes that we might see it more clearly today. Father, we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn to first Timothy chapter four. Uh, If you've been around the last few weeks, you may be shocked that we actually got out of chapter three. Uh, We, you know, give your neighbor a high five. We made it all the way to chapter four. Uh, That's a good thing. Um, So today we are going to hit all of chapter four. And so let me read it as you guys are turning there. Yeah, you feel that too, don't you? Um, Good luck, right? Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the ins- insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is, if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good, the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. So lots of stuff in there. Let me tell you what we're going to talk about. This uh, we've been talking about the church and how we understand what the church is over the last few weeks as we've gotten in this book of First Timothy, and, and when we come to the, this discussion today, we're going to kind of continue that conversation. I ran across a phrase this week that I thought was helpful because I think it describes, honestly, a lot of the way in which we, we do this work of uh, thinking about the church, and that phrase was accidental ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is our Theology, our understanding of the church, our belief system about what the church is, and the phrase that I came across this week that I heard someone else use was that most of us have an accidental ecclesiology, meaning we we have a we kind of stumble into our view of what the church is rather than really looking at a biblical view of what the church is. Now, this is uh, I think oftentimes the problem with our world is that everyone has a view of the church, like you may never have been taught what the church is, but you have a view that's developed from uh, different sources. You drive by buildings, and you see some of them have crosses on them, and you think, well, that's different from other buildings. And so you begin to have an idea of what a church is. You see, uh, maybe you're flipping through the stations, and you see a religious station, and you develop a little more of an idea of what a church is. Maybe you grew up in church, maybe you didn't, but you interact, and, and you attend church, and you develop this kind of view of what's going on. The problem is, for a lot of us, our view, our theology, our ecclesiology of the church is shaped more by our culture than by our Bible. And that creates all kinds of problems, especially in a world where where kind of a, a postmodern epistemology shapes the way we do that. What I mean by that, and it's the, kind of throwing out a big word there, but here's what I mean by that. There's, there's a view of the world that's kind of, the, the, that's kind of shaped the way in which we all think about life and really what that, and kind of how we come to the nature of truth and how we understand truth. And really what a postmodern epistemology says is, that everyone determines your own truth. That whatever truth you want to, or you, you feel is, is accurate, then you hold on to that and say, and you're going to call it your own personal truth. And so, if everyone's truth is kind of self determined, then that, that's going to shape the way in which we think about all these things. And that, that the highest factor in determining truth in our world is that, man, if it feels good to me, and if it feels right to me, and if it sounds true to me, then it's true. But if it's not, then I'm going to discard that and I'm gonna grab hold of a new truth. And so if something begins to rub me the wrong way, if something begins to rub against that or contradict something that makes me not feel good, then I think, well, that must not be true. And so I set that aside and take on something new that I can now call my new truth because truth is self-determined. And you can imagine how that affects the way in which we view not just um, relationships and sexuality and morality and marriage and so many other things in life, but it also affects the way in which we see church and the way in which we understand how church is meant to operate. Now, our, uh, another con- kind of complicating factor in all that is that our, our worldview that's kind of the, the, the waters we swim in in our world also says that institutions and authority is bad. And so we set aside institutions and we set aside any kind of authority because we want to be our own authority. And if the highest value in our culture is personal freedom and kind of this expressive individualism of I get to express myself however it is I want to and I get to determine what's true and institutions and any kind of authority is bad, then what happens is we create kind of this consumeristic culture that we operate in where you just kind of say, well, my job is to wander through the aisles of this world and grab hold of the stuff I like and take it home with me and ignore the stuff I don't like and leave it there and go on about my journey. And this is oftentimes the way in which we formulate our view and our understanding of church. Now, here's where this gets tricky. You come to 1 Timothy 4, and you see something that says, now the Spirit of God expressly or clearly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. So the one faith, some are going to depart from it. Now you've got this kind of inside-outside thing that's happened. There's a right view of the faith and a wrong view. And it goes on and says, That they, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So you see the problem taking place here. If we live in a world where everyone gets to determine their own truth, where everyone based on what feels good and seems right gets to determine what's right or wrong and everyone's right and wrong can be individualized to them, then you come to a scripture like this that says, well, there's some that have left the faith that becomes Creates, begins to create some tension for us, doesn't it? Because it begins to contradict. The scriptures begin to say, no, this is a right view, and that is a wrong view. And you don't get to self-determine what is true. And so you can, uh, so as we begin to wrestle with this, it's interesting when you think about our world that it comes into conflict with commands like this. When we see Paul a little bit later is going to say, command and teach these things. Or even stronger, you go to Titus, and Titus uh, Paul's also writing to pastors and he says there, um, he says declare these things exhort and rebuke with all authority let no one disregard you. So if that's a command for a pastor exhort command rebuke with all authority let no one disregard you. What is a person that says no I get to determine what's true? How are they going to feel about that text? And you can feel the you can feel the tension there, right? You see how that's how how those things are infecting our world and also shaping the way in which we think about the church and the way in which we think about, uh, we think about pastors. So it's interesting is I, as I was looking and studying for this this week, I just was thinking, you know, the, the idea that people move away from the things that are, or depart from the faith is, you know, we, we tend to move away from that which is disagreeable to us. And yet if we're going to allow God to truly be God, then there's going to be places where surely he's going to contradict our broken selves. In our sinful lives, and He's going to correct, and He's going to offer a course correction. Now, here's what I know: uh, Paul, in, in this day, was dealing with a specific group of people, and he was wrestling with something. And so there were these kind of aesthetics that were uh, kind of creating this two-tiered spiritual system, and they pretended as though they had kind of this inner, uh, kind of inner knowledge that they needed to, that, or, or that. The, the, they had kind of stumbled across that told them what it was like to be really spiritual. And so they neglected certain things. They neglected marriage and anything that that, and and enjoying foods and things that God had given and blessed them with and created. And so uh, sexuality was bad. So marriage was bad. Uh, Eating and enjoying life was bad. And so the physical was really bad. And so Paul is contradicting that here and saying, no, you need to realize that God said in Genesis 2, it is good, it is good, and it, it's not good for man to be alone, meaning it's good for him to find a, find a spouse if, if, um, if God brings a spouse his way. And so there, there's this kind of contradiction that, he, that Paul's dealing with, and that's not really the thing in our world, but the principle of what Paul's saying is there's going to be ideas that come into the world that need to be corrected and contradicted. And so we need to lean on truth. And these guys were pretending to have an inside track on spirituality. So here's the thing. We live in a world right now where there's kind of an epidemic of people departing from the faith. Like if you're one of the people that gets online and you just read and you see all the hot news stories, you know some of the people. You know the names of these people that were artists and pastors and influencers that uh, that they have left the faith and, and they, made it, they make big statements about it and they do it. And every one of them, if you did an exit interview with the guys that have left the faith, every one of them would say that they were going to something better. Every one of them thinks they're making a choice to go to something better. That's why I think it talks about deception here. And you have this kind of partnership between uh, kind of a satanic influence that Satan is working and kind of false teachers that are, that are deceiving and lying to them about this. Now, what I know is Error is never going to walk in the door in a trucker's cap that says "lies from Satan," yeah. right? Like that's just not the way error comes to us. That's not the way heresy comes. It's not the way false ideas come. Like no one comes in and you got a T-shirt that says like "doctrine from hell," you know? And then you come in and like you know and you go, "Oh, well, we should probably avoid that guy because he's doctrine from hell." Yeah, it's not the way it works. But it comes in and there's this, there's this wooing, there's this appealing nature to it. There's something that 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 looks attractive. And so in our world, there's ideas that are flowing through our world and some of them look so attractive. And you go, man, that sounds like the God I would want, like what I would want God to be like. It sounds like something that I want to be true. That sounds like something I want to build my life on. And yet you come to scripture and go, well, it doesn't look like that. And we have to decide what it is we're going to do in the midst of all this stuff. And so this really, there's this phrase that is haunting in this that talks about their consciences being seared. The word there really is cauterized. When you think of taking a hot iron and applying it to flesh in a way that it melts it and cauterizes it so that it no longer can be used for the function that it was created or designed for. That's what it's talking about. And your conscience is that which helps you determine what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. And what it says is here the error has infected them to a point that their consciences are seared and they can no longer tell right from wrong. That's a scary place to be. And really, this is the first great danger for a pastor. That you would drift into, you would drift in terms of your doctrine, your belief in error, and that you'd be so infected with kind of the spirit of the age, of the zeitgeist of the age, that you would become doctrinally erroneous. That's the first great danger that we, Paul addresses here for pastors. And really, I mean, when you think about this, we live in a world where this is happening over and over. Where I'm seeing guys drift over and over, and I've mourned about friends of mine that I've seen have walked away from the faith. Guys that taught me, guys that mentored me, guys that, that walked with me, and they they have just have departed, and they have left, and 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 you really can't almost talk to them anymore because they are convinced that their truth is right, and it's heartbreaking and it's heartrending. So, are you depressed yet? Feel really down? Um. You can get upset about this. Let me give you some good news, okay? This is why Paul gave us First Timothy 4, is to deal with these things. And so he didn't leave us without any kind of direction. So let me ask you this question. We're gonna talk about pastor today. What is a pastor? What shapes your idea of what a pastor is supposed to be? You know, as a pastor guy that you know, shows up when babies are born, that marries and buries, as one guy said, that the pastor's called a hatch, patch, and dispatch. Um, or I'm sorry, hatch, match, and dispatch. That, 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 you know, you're, you're there when, when they come into the world, you're there to get them together and you're there to send them out of the world. And, uh, and in between, you're sort of like a spiritual concierge to meet everyone's needs and just run around trying to like make sure everyone feels good about things. Uh, like how, what shapes our view of what a pastor is supposed to be? Um, Paul is gonna give us some direction here. And I think it's important. So let's look at verse six. Verse six begins kind of the, after he deals with all the errors in uh, the first few verses of chapter four, verse six, he turns and says, now let me tell you, so that's what not to do, let me tell you what to go do. In verse six, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ. If you put these things before the brothers is really just talking about teaching the Bible, that you're to to lay these things out for people. You're to put them under them. One guy uh, said, this is almost like kind of thinking about putting stepping stones through treacherous waters. In that in the kind of re, the raging currents of our world that you're, you're laying out stepping stones for, to show them how it is that they are to walk through the, the, and, and navigate the waters of this world. And so if you think about the simplicity of that, I love that, that you, your job is just to lay before the people truth. Put these things before the people, make it clear to them, let them see what God really says that's different from what the erroneous teachers had said. Now, I think any of you ever gone to a church that kind of talked so over your head that you just thought, man, that sounds really, really, really smart, but I have no idea what any of it meant. Um, you know, I, I love what one guy said. He says, Jesus said, feed my sheep, not feed my giraffes for a reason, right? Like we, a pastor needs to make things clear. He needs to set it out for people so that they can understand really what it says and, and explain it in a way that they go, oh, I know what to do with that. And so there needs to be that sense. So, so we don't need to be so high that we don't explain it and make it clear for people so they can actually walk in it. We also don't need to make it so trite and kind of saccharine and sweet that you can stick it all in a Hallmark card. Like that's the other side that it's, you know, it's like taking a spit bath in truth, but you don't really get wet. Like you don't, you're not learning anything. You're not really immersing yourself in anything. Like that would be the other problem. And the reason Paul says this right after he warns us about false teachers, right? So one of the jobs of a pastor is to protect the people from false ideas, that you're to guard them. You're to watch over the things that, uh, that, that are kind of flowing through the world and point them out and say, no, that will lead you in a way that's, that you don't wanna go and point you in the right direction. And we've got an Australian shepherd. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I love people, but I don't love people all the time. Like, I'm kind of an introverted guy that I, I love being around people, but you give me about, you know, seven o'clock on a Sunday after doing all this stuff. And I'm like, my kids come in and go, hey, dad, are you doing the introvert thing? And I go, yeah, I am. You know, like, I'm going to pull away. I'm not going to do a whole lot of connecting right now. So we've got this Australian Shepherd. And I don't know if you know anything about Australian Shepherds, but the dudes are loud and they're active and they're a little OCD. Like they've definitely like ADHD. Like they're just roaming and doing and moving. And um, when we first got this Australian Shepherd, it drove me crazy. Because I feel like every time I let him out the door, he immediately ran to the fence and started barking at something. And, uh, you know, for a while, it was just, I just like, man, would you just shut the dog up? And then I realized he's a shepherd. He's literally made to run the perimeter and guard every, and bark at anything to warn people of what might come in and create danger for anyone inside. And so he's doing exactly that which he's made for. One of the things that a pastor, a pastor who's also called a shepherd is supposed to do is we need to bark at all the bad stuff and warn people of what's coming and warn people of the dangers that are there. And so when you think about our world, a pastor has to say, you know, the, our world says this about gender, but the Bible says this. Our world says this about race, but the Bible says this. Our world says this about marriage, but the Bible says this. Our world says this about leadership, but the Bible says we're to be servants. So the world says this about truth, but the Bible says, and so we're constantly just like a, like a shepherd dog running the perimeter, just trying to protect people from the things that are, that are swimming in the world and the things that are out there. And so that's part of the job of a pastor is to put these things before people in a way that they can see that which is true. And he says that you're a good servant of Jesus. If you do those things, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Uh, I love the phrase here. The good means it's a noble cause that you give yourselves to. But you notice that a pastor is a servant, not a celebrity. Jesus is the only celebrity in the church. And a pastor is a servant of Jesus. That's the role that we're to have. We're like, we're like roadies who carry his luggage and run around and set the stage for him to show up. That's, a, that's what a pastor's job is. It is, is we, we carry Jesus' baggage We carry Jesus' stuff, and we come out, and we just set a stage and hope that he shows up, and and you guys get to see him, and we try to show him off. Uh, One guy, uh, heard someone talking about this, and was talking about the fact that that we call the church the bride of Christ. You know, the bride of Christ means that Jesus is the groom, right? So the pastor's not the groom. The, The pastor's like a groomsman. He's a friend of the groom. And so he doesn't get to treat the church however he wants. He's not, married to the, he, he's not married to the church. He's part of the church. But he comes around as a friend of the groom and just helps the church connect with Jesus. He's supposed to set the stage and make sure that everything works so that they can connect. And that's part of the job of a pastor is that he, he's a servant of Christ. Next verse in verse seven, says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And he talks about have nothing, to, uh, I'm sorry, let me go back to the end of verse six. Actually starts off and says, be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. See, another danger for a pastor is that the pastor would be shallow. That we're to be trained in the doctrine. We're to pour ourselves into the truth and the word and understand what it is and not just be batting around silly ideas. And the the word there is kind of like old wives' tales. Is kind of the the phrase that's used for that irrelevant, uh, that kind of irreverent, irrelevant. uh, What's the word I'm looking for? I can't even say it right. Um, Irreverent, that's the word. Uh, Irreverent silly myths. You know, it's interesting when you think about pastors that we're not called to be novel for the sake of novelty. We're not called to be creative for the sake of trying to entertain people. We're called to be creative in helping you understand what the word of God is. And that's ultimately what we're to be about. We're not to entertain these other ideas. One guy said the ideas he's talking about are myths that are for the godless and the gullible. And so we wanna be those that that are steeped in the truth. And so a pastor protects the sheep, but he has to also feed the sheep. And so he needs, to be, he needs to have something to say. Otherwise we become marketers for the church rather than prophets of God. And that's not what we're called to be. And so uh, we need to be trained in the word and trained in doctrine. Now, friends, training takes time. And I'll just be honest, can I be a little vulnerable here? This is one of the hardest things for me every single week. Not to study, I love to study. Not to get in the word, I love getting in the word. Not to preach, I love preaching. The problem is that there's so many other things that are swirling around and demanding our attention and drawing us away, that oftentimes I have to, it's really hard work. One of the hardest things I do is guard my time so that I can get into the word because there's always demands. There's always things, that, 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 there's always needs. And I love you guys. And I love trying to be with you guys and I love trying to visit and to do things and other stuff. But if I try to do that all the time, I never get to do the thing that I'm commanded to do here. And that time gets pushed aside. And honestly, I heard another guy say this and I think it's true, that pastors get embarrassed about this. It seems strange, but we do. Because there's there's kind of this mentality that, yeah, you know, pastors only work an hour a week, Right? Like you hear that joke, you hear those things. It's, it, it sometimes feels selfish to a pastor to get in the word because we love it so much and it's so good. But it's also our, the number one thing on our job description and what we have to be about. In order to say yes to that, we have to say no to some other things. And that's a constant battle, is it not? How, how many weeks do I get to Wednesday? And I'm like, oh man, you gotta find some time. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I, I attend on Wednesdays not to come to the office. Because I come to the office and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, all this stuff going on. And so I, I tend to stay home and work on the first part of Wednesdays and I tend to stay home on Friday. And that's so that I get alone and I go usually sit on my porch. I may throw some meat on, I may get up early and throw some meat on my grill and let it sit there for like eight or nine hours and let it just smoke. And then I'm going to go get myself next to the word and I'm going to let it smoke. And I'm going to let it try to, and hopefully I'm marinating in it. And it's, it's, it's kind of getting all over me. And so that the stink of scripture, you know, shows up on Sunday. That's a, that's a good week for me. And when I don't do that, we're in trouble. And so I love what, um, what Charles, uh, my favorite preacher, Charles Adden Spurgeon says this. He talks about a graceless pastor. When he talks about a graceless pastor, he means a pastor who's bringing himself and not bringing something from the Lord that, that was given by the Lord, but something of just himself. He says, a graceless pastor is a blind man elected to a professorship of optics, philosophizing upon light and vision, discoursing about and distinguishing to others the nice shades and delicate blending of the prismatic colors while he himself is absolutely in the dark. He is a dumb man elevated to a chair of music, a deaf man fluent upon symphonies and harmonies. He's a mole professing to educate eagles and a limpet elected to preside over angels. And it's a bad thing when a pastor has nothing but himself to bring but our job ultimately is to keep the word between me and you. And so what ought to happen is just shining a light on this and it goes to you guys and you guys begin to see it. And if I don't have that, then we're gonna be in a world of hurt. So why do we take this so seriously? Let's look at verse, uh, it is really because there's eternal goals out there for us to achieve. Verse eight says, rather train yourself for godliness for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So he's just saying six pack abs are worth something, but an all in life of faith is worth a lot more, right? So to, to physically exercise is a good thing. He, doesn't, he didn't condemn that. He says, it's a good thing. It'll make your life here better. But godliness will make your life here better and your life in eternity better. And so your character is actually worth more and something that we need to hold on to. And uh, this is another danger for a pastor is that you would live in the world of unapplied truth that you'd study it as an intellectual thing, but you'd not actually apply it to yourself. And so you need to train yourself, not just in the word, but you need to train yourself for godliness. Uh, friends, let me just let you in on this. Um, pastors are people, which means they struggle. Pastors struggle with sin just like you do. There, there's not a pastor on this planet who doesn't trip and fall down just like you do. There's not a pastor on this planet it doesn't feel the tensions that you feel. It feels things that woo his attention away from the Lord and something else. All of us do. Here's what you want. You want a pastor that struggles against sin. Because the only other option, it, it is not an option not to sin. You want a pastor who struggles against sin because the only other option is a pastor to stop struggling against it. And just giving in to it. And that's a dangerous place to be. And so you, you need to pray for your pastor. You need to pray for, uh, for one another because the, the struggle is real to walk in the light and uh, sin is, is ever present. And so this word for training, he talks about is discipline yourself and it connects it back to this kind of physical activity of, of bodily training. And just like an athlete that's working, uh, that we're called to train ourselves for godliness. One thing I do, Paul writes in Philippians, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's so like an athlete competing and fighting for a prize. We're to take the spiritual life that seriously as well. It's interesting, this word for training, is, uh, it, the, the root word for that in Greek is the same word we get "gymnasium" from. So this training yourself for godliness is the word we get going to the gym. What he's saying is go into the gym of godliness and train yourself for. It. Verse 10, it's interesting. He says, for this we toil and we strive. Let me break down those words for you. Toil means labor. It means strenuous work, like an athlete fatigued from competitive training. So the word for toil there, the image you should have in your mind is someone that has put everything into an athletic event and they've just about passed out in a pile of sweat at the end of the day. That's what the word is, is intended here. And it says, for this end, we toil and we strive. The word, for, uh, the word toil there could also mean just to wear out. So, uh, one definition said, work to the point of weariness and exhaustion. Strive, this is an interesting word. Uh, it's agonizomai. It's the word we get agony from. Remember the, uh, the old uh, wide world of sports, the thrill of victory and agony of defeat? It's kind of, the, that's kind of the idea that Paul's wanting you to get from all these words that to strive here is to put yourself through agony in a battle or a struggle to get a victory. Friends, sin is easy. Godliness takes toil and striving and discipline to get there. And one book, uh, classic book, J. Oswald Sanders and Spiritual Leadership says this, if a leader is unwilling to pay the price of fatigue for his leadership, it will always be mediocre. True leadership always exacts a heavy toll on the whole man. And the more effective the leadership is, the higher price to be paid. There's a sacrifice, there's a toil, there's an effort that's there that creates fatigue for all of us. So, uh, you know, when you think about pastors, it's interesting to say, well, why would you work so hard at this? Verse 10 tells us, it says, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. He's not saying that everyone's saved here, by the way. He's saying that God sustains all, uh, all people, and so everyone is preserved, everyone's cared for physically, and those who believers are going to experience a special salvation that is eternal as well. But Jesus, you know, it's that our hope, and this hope, the word for hope there is this kind of continual confidence in what God's going to do. And so there's a continual hope that's set on the living God. If a pastor ever loses his hope, he's done. If a pastor ever loses, this is another danger for pastors, that he would lose his confidence in God. If a pastor ever forgets that God is alive and active at work and bringing about salvation of people and, and doing good things, pastor will have nothing else, but, nothing but self to bring to the table and he'll be done. And deep down, I just tell you, most pastors, or not most, all pastors know that they aren't that strong and they aren't that good. And so if you don't have hope in a God who's alive and who's at work, then all you got to do is bring, all you can bring to the table is yourself. And if you know that, and I'm not that good and I'm not that strong, then there's gonna be a weakness to the ministry that's there. And what's worse is when a pastor's arrogant enough to think that he is strong enough and good enough. And so he brings himself and tries to drive forward that way, which is actually a much greater danger. Now, a pastor hopes than a living God. That's, that's the thing that gets you up in the morning, that you get up and go and There's a God who's at work in the world, and there's eternal stakes in the game of life, and there's things that are gonna be determined today. Some people are going to pass away, and they're gonna spend eternity separated from God, and others are going to rejoice. And, and when you go to a funeral, and as a pastor, you go and I man, some of them you go and you think, man, this is going to be a celebration and we're going to have a good time. And others you go, and you're just and there's a weight to it. And you have to believe that there's a living God that makes an eternal difference in people's lives. And if you lose that confidence, you're you're in, in great danger. But there's a continuous hope. So look at verse 11. Here we're going to deal uh, with another pastor. So one one of the one of the dangers there would be that. A pastor loses confidence in God. And that ultimately is the thing that has to nourish you so that you are willing to endure the toil and the striving and the agony of, uh, of disciplining yourself in the word and in godliness. So verse 11, he's gonna shift and kind of tell us where we're headed in, uh, in, in terms of the, the actual work. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. He talks about commanding and teach these things. These things meaning the, the gospel. That we're we're to teach the word. We're to teach the truth of the gospel and what it is we believe. And command is ordering, it's exhorting, it's encouraging, it's urging. And so it's not just kind of intellectual, let me give you some information about this, but you're seeking transformation, not just information. So you're urging people to obey this stuff and you're teaching. And that uh, that word there connects back with some of what we saw in in chapter two and three. It's the authoritative teaching of the church when it comes together in the gathering that there's a teaching and an instruction that takes place there. Um, and then verse 12, Paul comes back to Timothy and he says, let no one look down on you because of your age. Now, he was probably mid late thirties at this point, the best we can tell. We don't really know, which we don't think of that as particularly young. Uh, and yet in light of where Paul's age and the, and the age of the other uh, overseers in the church, uh, Timothy was probably younger. And so uh, another problem that a pastor faces is timidity that sometimes he's, he's fearful. And so uh, how, if you're afraid, how difficult is it gonna be to command and teach people from the word? So there's gotta be a trusting in the Lord and a confidence in the living God that in, in in, uh, empowers you and enables you to speak truth, even in the face of fear. And, and so Paul begins to deal with that. And he says, let no one despise you because of your youth. And yet here in the midst of this, he doesn't start with the mouth, even when he says, command and teach, what's the first thing he says to this young pastor? He says, let your life be an example. Set an example for the believers. And he gives him five areas that he's to be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. Some of that's public, some of that's private. But you're to be consistent, you're to be coherent, that your life is supposed to match. The The typical saying is what? Practice what you, yeah, so you know. That, that's part of what Paul's saying is you need to practice what you preach. And uh, most people are gonna, hear or see the sermon in your life before they listen to the sermon in the church. They wanna, they wanna see it lived out. So he says, set an example. He talks about being a type, meaning that you're to be a type of, that looks like Christ, that others can kind of imprint themselves after and, and model for them what, what this life is supposed to look like. Verse 13 then, he says, devote yourself, pay attention to three things. So in contrast to being afraid or being fearful or being timid, you need to step into that. Step into that first with a life that you've trained in godliness that begins to look more like Jesus. And then then you come to the word. Verse 13, it gives us three different ways. It says, devote yourself to or pay attention to the public reading of the scripture to exhortation and to teaching. Those are kind of three sides of uh, of a a gem. that he's kind of just setting up and saying, here's, here's the primary task of the work. So the public reading of scripture is just what we did earlier, that you actually read the Bible and you actually get into the word and you actually go to it and, and bring it um, before people. Exhortation is really the art, the art of preaching. It's the encouraging, urging, calling people to trust and obey. And so it's not just instruction, but it's actually bringing it to bear on them and, incur, and exhorting them to obey it. And then teaching is, as we said, the, the teaching in the gathered church. Verse 14, he's gonna take that and kind of remind Timothy of something that's important for him to know. And this also is a place that combats some of that timidity that Timothy might've had as a pastor. He says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you. And every one of us, uh, the scriptures teach, have a spiritual gift. Uh, Did you know that you have a spiritual gift, that God has given you uh, not just talents and experiences and uh, and abilities, but he's also given you gifts that are meant to be used to bless the church and to build up the church and to encourage the church. And every single one of us has one. And for a pastor, that particular gift that pastors need is the gift of teaching. And so Paul's reminding Timothy, look, this is a gift which you received, a gift that came from God. He says that through the laying on of hands, and so it was something that was given to you by God, and so it's divine, but it's also confirmed through the body of, uh, of the church. And so those elders that, that affirmed and confirmed that um, put that on display for you. Now, notice the phrase he says, do not neglect the gift. Um, if you've been given a gift, what's the, what's the most insulting thing you could do with it? What's that? Ignore it, neglect it. And he's just saying, don't, don't waste your gift. If God, God particularly, think about this. If God came to you and said, hey, I've got this special tool that I, I made it just for you and it, it's gonna help you to do something good in this world and I, I wanna give you this gift of this, this tool and I'm gonna put it in your hands and I want you to use it and you put it in your trunk and never took it out again. And God came back around and said, Hey, you know how's it going? You know, have you have you practiced? Have you expert? Have you uh, have you experienced? You know, all the everything you can do with that gift. Have you become an expert in the use of that tool? You go, well, which tool? And you're like well, the one I gave you, right? He says, don't neglect it. You need to use the gift that you've been given. It's interesting when he says this. He says, devote yourself to practice these things. So there's a, there's a commitment to it, but there's also this cultivating of the gift. It's not something that you just kind of turn on or off. It's something you actually have to develop. It says, immerse yourself in them. Meaning you need to dive into the deep waters of this stuff. So for Timothy and this gifts of teaching and this call to exhort through the word and to be devoted to the word, uh, he's literally supposed to be in them. Like give yourself holy. like immerse yourself in the word so that, and in this gift of teaching, so that you can use it for the good of the church. And just like you, pastors don't, don't arrive as finished products and perfect polished works of art. Uh, he, he, one of the encouraging things, one of the most encouraging things for a pastor is to look at this and he says, um, when he says practice these things, you're like, oh good, like I don't have to have totally arrived yet. Like, I can still practice, I can develop, I can actually get better at this thing. And then he says, let others, so that everyone may see your progress. And it's, it's there's supposed to be a visible progress to a pastor's ability to teach and what he does. There ought to be this kind of growth that you see taking place there. And, and it's interesting, you guys, uh, you know, some of you come in here and... Uh, you just know as a pastor, you teach and you get evaluated. That's just part of the deal, right? And you guys go home and it's like, what do you think of the sermon? And like, I, I know those conversations happen. And just being completely honest, like, and there's a, there's a weightiness to that. And, and you feel that. Pastors oftentimes talk about the Monday morning blues. Like you walk out and you're like, oh, I could have done that better. I didn't deliver that, man, that one line I blew. And you know, like you, just, you, can, like you can go back and you remember all the stuff when you come back from this, It's just why it can't be about you. It's gotta be about someone else. But there is also a call that says, and you ought to grow in this. You know, the the first sermon I preached was in a little church in Wyoming. It's a little country church, about 65 people. Uh, It was awful. Like, I did not know what I was doing. It was just, it was horrific. Um, And then when I was in seminary, I I was so desperate to try to figure out how to start doing this thing that one day I was in class and someone said, hey, I'm supposed to speak at this homeless shelter, um, but I can't go. You know, is there anyone here that could take my slot? And I was like, I got it. I'll go. And I, I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, where's the place? And got the address. And I, I shouldn't admit this. This is pre, uh, you know, not, not necessarily cell phone days, but I remember I'm driving down Mockingbird Lane in Dallas, heading over to another part of town to go to this homeless shelter. And I've got my notepad sitting over here and I'm driving and I'm writing and I'm driving, and I'm writing, I'm making up the sermon as I'm going. And I got there and I preached at this homeless shelter. And uh, it's a lot like you guys, like half of them were asleep, um, half of them were there. Uh, there were a couple of obnoxious ones that would talk back to me. Like there was one guy that clearly had studied the Bible somewhere and I'd, uh, you know, I'd start saying something. He'd be like, whoa, wait a minute. And he start asking me a question. And there was another guy that he'd sit there and he'd just do one of these. And like if, and he'd just wait because they had to be there to eat. And so he'd, if you he were good enough, he'd start waking up by the end, but he would act like he's asleep every week. And so I started going back to this homeless shelter and preaching every, every Tuesday evening um, because I wanted to get better at preaching. I wanted to see what this was like, but but it was a struggle. Um, uh, There was a period where I worked at a church in Dallas and um, kind of found out that, man, I've got this, I had a voice issue that like a lot of ex-athletes that you're used to lifting weights and doing stuff. And so when you feel any kind of stress, your body does this and you just tighten up because, man, you're about to go hit someone, right? Like, you know, a football guy. And so you do that to your voice and it really pinches it off. And I was actually damaging my voice every time I talked. And so I worked with a voice coach for two years because I wanted to do this and felt called to do this. And five days a week did exercises just to learn how to like loosen up and be myself and figure this thing out. There's work that goes in to learning how to do this and to develop. And I think it's better than it was then. I think it's grown a little bit since that day. But, you know, when you come to, when you come to using your gifts, and you guys have a gift, don't neglect it. Labor over it. Toil and strive. Devote yourself to it. Give yourself to it. Pour yourself in it. Immerse yourself in it. Practice it. Because it's there for the good of the church, and that's what we're called to do. Um, you notice that Paul ends there, as he gets to the end, he says, keep a, keep a watch on what? And he comes back to There's this balance that runs through this whole passage. Keep a watch on yourself and your teaching. The pastor has to do both watching yourself, your life, the way in which you live. Elsewhere, the scripture says, we we came to you and we didn't just tell you the truth, we gave you our very lives. That it's a personal work. This isn't something you can do just through a podcast or something else, but there's a personal work that happens between a pastor and people that you're meant to be amongst the people because you're one of them. You're a shepherd, but you're also a sheep. And so there's this personal nature to what we do and what we're called to do. The last danger that I pastor that I that I see in this passage is discouragement. Paul says, "Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers." Meaning, you get the the joy of a pastor is you get to partner with God in bringing about salvation and, and seeing Him work in the world and do eternal things. But there's a there's a discouragement that sometimes comes, and he says, "Persist." The word "persist" there is "persevere." persevere. Don't give up. Don't quit. Stay at it. Stay in the game. Don't walk away. This is is what what it means to be in ministry, is that you're going to need to persevere in order to be an instrument of God's saving grace in the world. It's interesting that God gives us the privilege of being a part of what he's doing. Obviously, a pastor can't save you. A pastor can't save himself that God allows us to partner with him in the work uh, that he's doing and the way in which God works in the world is through people. Friends, you know what encourages me? You guys. You're my joy. When I see God's salvation work in you, that encourages me. That gives me perseverance. That, in, that, when I see you serving like Jesus, and that builds me up, that gives me joy. When I see you walking with Jesus that gives me joy. When I see you gently caring for your kids like Christ, that gives me joy. When I see you serving your spouse and caring well for them, that gives me joy. When I see you praying together, that gives me joy. When I see, um, when I see you guys rolling up your sleeves and just getting after it in the ministry, that gives me joy. That helps me persist. That helps me persevere. You guys are why I'm here. It starts with believing the Lord and trusting that He's doing good things, and then seeing the salvation and work of Him in people. Um, that's the thing that, that, that makes a pastor smile. And let me tell you, this place is a fun place to preach. I preached uh, another place at a funeral not long ago, and the cold, kind of just apathetic looks in many of the eyes of the people I was preaching was so heartbreaking is as you're talking about the gospel and the beauty of Christ, and there was no warmth, there was no engaging, there was no one leaning forward in their seats, but there was just an emptiness that was there. And I want you to know, it's a joy to get to do what I do. To get to sit here and look out on you guys and see you guys leaning in, to see you taking notes, to see you guys kind of soaking up the things that, that God has instructed us in in his word. Um, and that's, that's what church is supposed to be. Um, can I ask for one thing? Would you pray for us? Because we're we're not that strong. We're not that smart. We're not that good. But we know someone who is. And he's given us a word, and he's given us a call, and he's given us a task. And that task is to walk with him. And we we face all the same struggles you do. And we pour ourselves out for the sake of the living God. And we have confidence in him and we know that he's doing good stuff but there's a lot of dangers that swirl in our world and guys are dropping like flies and we need your prayers. We need your encouragement. We need you to link arms with us because we're all in this together. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray. We ask for your help, Father, because um, we need your grace. We need your mercy. Father, we know that we cannot save ourselves, but that Christ does the work of saving, and so we come humbly. Father, we ask for your sustaining grace. We ask for your ongoing confidence and hope in your life and in your power. Father, may you be glorified in us. God, would you protect us from falling? Would you protect everyone in this room from departing from the faith? Father, would you you keep watch over our souls? Father, may you show yourself off in your church to be true. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, would you draw them to yourself? If there's anyone here who's been hurt by church, Father, would you heal that hurt? Father, if there's anyone here who needs to be reminded of the hope that they have, that you are alive, that you are at work, that you are forever, that life is good, and that what we do matters here and forevermore. Father, would you just open their their eyes that they might see it and trust it more deeply. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.